Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, welcome back into the Nick Bob podcast. And we are looking at a, a tough podcast today as Creighton loses in the Elite Eight, 57-56 to San Diego State, South Regional Final. Uh, I'm taping this. It is uh, Monday, about lunchtime. And I, I, I'm telling you, I think officially, uh, I think losing in the Elite Eight is one of the worst feelings in the sports world. I mean, wow. Goodness gracious, to be 40 minutes away from the Final Four, be up five points at halftime, then be back and forth for the final two minutes of the game, and then for it to be tied with 1.8 seconds left and lose, absolutely brutal. To be that close to the Final Four and watch it slip away is is just absolutely brutal. So... As I wrote this out, I actually wrote a lot of this out on the team plane flying home from from Louisville. So for people that don't know, obviously I was with Creighton doing Creighton radio throughout the the NCAA tournament. Um, and I know for me as a former player, if I for a second can put that hat on just for, for a moment here, as a former player, this one really, really hurt. Like hurt as bad as any I've experienced since I was playing, which was now, shoot, 15 years ago. The only other Creighton loss post my playing career that even sniffs this in terms of just pain is probably the 2014 Baylor loss, Doug's senior year, Doug McDermott's senior year in the second round of the tournament, just because of how special that group was and how special Doug McDermott was. You wanted to see it indifferent. But I'm telling you right now, I think this one hurts more. I mean, in a lot of ways, mentally, I'm still stuck courtside staring onto the floor after the foul call on Ryan Nemhart. It's like I'm having a hard time really mentally move on. You know, like you know, if you're you're watching Netflix, you're streaming a show or something like that, and some like it freezes on a scene and it's buffering and it's freezing. Like that's my brain right now. My brain is just like frozen mentally in Louisville, Kentucky, at the KFC Yum Center with about 1.8 seconds left in the game. So. I'm going to do my best here to, to recap and unpack this game, but this one is raw. This one is is emotional. It it really is. But I guess let's let's start with where I'm at, where I'm frozen mentally right now, and that's the foul call on Nemhard. Let's start there and just get – because obviously that's the thing everybody's talking about. Let's start there. Then we'll work into all the other things that unfolded with that game. But let me preface everything with – this thought to avoid anybody out there that's going to scream at me on Twitter or wherever, Nick, quit crying about the call. That was one call. Stop whining. Oh, Creighton fan. Creighton, quit crying. Where, where, where? Creighton, quit crying. Okay. So let me be crystal. Let, let me be completely clear. Creighton didn't lose 
because of that one foul call on Ryan Nembhard at the end of the game. That didn't cost Creighton the game. What cost Creighton the game was Creighton got physically punked in the second half by San Diego State. That's what cost Creighton the game. San Diego State completely imposed their will on Creighton in the second half. Creighton got crushed on the offensive glass in the second half, and the physicality and ball pressure from San Diego State got Creighton way out of sorts and got them all pressed out on offense. That's why Creighton lost, among a bunch of other things. But those are those are the two biggest reasons when really it's just one. It's, it's San Diego State's physicality. So I, I want to make that point and make that clear before I even talk about the foul. Okay, let's get to the call then, the foul call. Because there are a bunch of perspectives with, the, with this discussion and this debate with this foul call. And I want to try to address as many as I can, a, a couple of them here. But I'll just let you know out the gate, from every single perspective, I totally disagree with the foul call. I thought it was a terrible call. That's truly one of the softest calls I've seen in a moment like that, in a big game like that. I can, I can remember. I can't think of a softer call in a big moment than that one. Let's start with this perspective in, a, in, in how we're going to discuss it. So I think a lot of people, myself included to a certain extent, are of the school of thought that all players and coaches want from officials is consistency. Establish how you're calling the game and be consistent. There is a sense from players that, hey, listen, you establish how tight or how physical you're calling the game, and I suppose it's on me as a player to adjust. You're calling a little tighter? All right, I got, I'm going to have to play a little different. You're letting us play a little bit, letting us push each other a little bit, letting little hand checks going on here and there? I got to adjust. Now, you hope every game and every scenario is officiated the exact same, but we all know that's just not quite true. Okay. Having said that, let me also say this. I do think I have an advantage in perspective, as do the 20,000 other people that were in the arena watching that Elite Eight game, but especially me because I was, I was courtside right next to the action. And that advantage is to really feel and understand and see just how physical of a game that was. That was a war. San Diego State was hammering Creighton inside and on the ball physically. That was 40 minutes of San Diego State's on-ball defenders with their hands on Creighton. That was 40 minutes of grabbing and holding off the ball with cutters and screens. That was 40 minutes of banging on the block for post position. That was 40 minutes of a really really, really physical basketball game. And so to witness all of that, to witness all that physicality and only see 17 total free throws taken, including the final two, shows, at least to me, that the refs 
we're letting things be physical with minimal whistles. In a physical game, only 15 total free throws were taken for 39 minutes and 58 seconds. For a physical game, that game, San Diego State and Creighton, each only had 11 fouls called on on them for the entire game. I mean, just looking at it, I, I took a peek. Texas Miami, the Elite Eight game later that day, had 47 free throws combined taken and had 37 combined fouls. Just for a little point of reference. In this one, it was 11 total fouls called on each team. So 22 fouls and 17 free throws taken. I mean, the game had kind of been established. In the second half, Creighton had seven fouls called on them. Only five team fouls until the final seven seconds where Creighton fouled twice because, of course, Trey Alexander fouled Lamont Butler because they had a foul to give, and then there was the final foul on Ryan Nemhart. And San Diego State only had six fouls called on them for the entire second half. So in my opinion, and it's a, it's really, it's, it's almost just like a fact, in my opinion, the refs had established how that game was being called. To be courtside, to witness that level of physicality for 40 minutes and then see that foul called with 1.8 seconds left is truly perplexing. That that honestly might have been the least amount of contact on a shot in the paint for the entire second half. Truly one of the softest calls I've seen in a moment like that I can remember. And the refs had established how they were calling the game. And then in the final two seconds, they called it different. So if you're of that, like just one consistency from the refs, didn't have that with this one. So that's one perspective or one way to discuss it. The refs had established how they were calling that game. They were letting it be physical. And then they call that. And I'm telling you, again, let me re- let me make sure it's it's clear. That game was super physical. Second perspective. So did did Ryan Nemhard touch Darian Trammell on the hip? Yes. I can't argue that. Did it impact the shot? Yeah. I don't know. I suppose that's up for debate. That's that's kind of hard to argue either way. But if we are entering into a world where a light touch on the hip is a foul, but, well, I'll just read this tweet because I thought Dirk Chatlin put it best with this tweet. Dirk tweeted this. We'll call a hand check midair, but we won't call a violent chest bump midair with the shot blocker's arms hanging over the offensive player at a 45-degree angle. I just don't know what we are doing sometimes. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Now, maybe this is losing focus on the call at hand and, and examining the rule book here, but the idea that if Ryan Nemhard would have jumped up in the air with him, Trammell, and chest and, and ch- kind of chest bumped him, and that isn't a foul, but a slight touch on the hip is, man, I'm a little lost. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you're playing the card of, it impacted the shot. 
I'm here to tell you, chest. if, if I'm Tramel, chest bumping me midair on a floater is going to impact my shot way more. So I'm just a little lost on how we are calling things in those spots in general. Next perspective. People are going to have to brace themselves for this a little bit. I am a believer in something that a lot of people lose their minds when they hear it, and that is I'm a believer in situational officiating. It's kind of like the whole idea of makeup calls. Refs will tell you they don't exist, and we all like to think they don't exist, but we all know they exist. That's how I kind of view situational officiating. You can claim it shouldn't exist, but it does and it should. By the rule book, sticklers, refs, and fans will claim they don't like it and there shouldn't be situational officiating. And I just disagree. I just disagree. The whole idea of a foul in the first minute of an of your of an exhibition game on November 3rd should be called a foul in the final 10 seconds of an elite 8 game. I mean, come on, man. Like, come on. I mean, do you do you really believe that and do you really want that? I know I don't. I know as a player and I know this because I've been in these moments. The final 30 seconds or final 10 seconds of a close game, a tied game, is typically way more physical than the first 39 minutes that preceded it or in a blowout. And you know what? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Maybe I'm cut from a different basketball cloth or I was raised in a, in a different basketball ideology, but I always felt like almost all players are operating under this understanding and this agreement that with the game on the line in the final 30 seconds and the final 10 seconds of a close game, a tie game, it's more physical. It's going to be more physical. I thought there was this understanding on the floor that the refs are going to maybe kind of swallow their whistles in these moments, and we're all good with that. We're all good with that. And again, the reason I feel this way is because I've been in these moments. I've been in big games, in college, high-level games, defending with the game on the line. I know what it's like out there. And let me tell you, it's different. And I'm good with that. I thought that was kind of understood. And I actually kind of thought it was one of those things we all kind of accepted. Hell, even think about it this way. Think about any time you have even played pickup basketball. And it's and obviously you're playing call your own fouls. Try calling a weak touch foul on game point. Game point. Seven seven. They're playing pickup. Tramel calls a foul on that. Shit. Liable for a fight to break out. You're going to call that weak shit? Game point? You know I'm not lying. 
And the reason is because of this understanding that I'm talking about. So I do believe in situational officiating. I am not in the camp of a foul is a foul no matter what. No, I think there are certain moments in certain spots, things are just different. Again, we can all live in a fairy tale, make believe world where everything is the same, all situations are the same and officiated the exact same. It's just not true. It's just not true. In those spots, you got to get, in some ways, it's got to be like a, everybody in the world is like, yep, that's a foul. For for a foul in that moment, it's got to be beyond obvious. Like, to the point where everybody's like, yeah, that's a foul. You just hammered him. So that is the 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 player's perspective on the final moments of a close game. And I, I this was interesting. So I want to read this to you. I got this sent to me from a ref. This is this is a ref. I got it relayed to me from a ref. So this isn't like a ref texting me, but I got it relayed to me from a ref. This is a a, a referee's official a, a referee's take on the last foul call on Ryan Nemhart, This was relayed to me. I'll just read it. This ref says, I wouldn't have called it. I want it to be crystal clear in that situation. Once the San Diego State guard gets out of the vision of the trail official, I think it then becomes the lead and center official's call to make. It is really challenging to get a sense of the degree of contact made on the player with the play going away from where you're at as the trail official in that spot. If the game is tied, I would rather see overtime and see if the players can settle it. If I'm sending someone to the free throw line in a tie game to likely decide the game, it's got to be beyond crystal clear for me to blow the whistle. And in my opinion, it wasn't crystal clear. Tie game, I'm not calling the foul. Okay, lots of great points in there, and that's the kind of school. Of, like when I talk about that, that understanding and that of of between players. Like I figured the refs kind of understood that too. That's a ref to like that ref gets it. Tie game, ten seconds left. Now one, two seconds left. It, it's got to be. It's got to be crazy egregious. So I completely agree with this this ref's take here. Tie game, 56-56. You're refing an elite eight game with one second left in a tie game, trip to the final four on the line. I'm only blowing my whistle if it is just like, holy crap, egregious foul. Or as this ref put it, crystal clear. And this ref also touches on something that I think matters with this is too. The game was tied. I think that matters here. It was tied. San Diego State wasn't down one. It was the game was tied. Go to overtime. Play five more minutes. Let's let let's let the players sort this thing out and see if they can kind of if it'll settle itself on the floor. The game was tied. Let it go to OT. I also hadn't thought about the fact that this drive and the action was going away from the ref who called it. And that it maybe it, it I guess technically wasn't probably his call to make. That's a good point too. I just thought there was a lot of interesting points in there, and that's that kind of officiating mindset 
that's the kind of officiating mindset I want out there in a big moment. Because I'm saying, like, that's where like my my mindset as a player is in alignment with the ref's mindset as they're refing that final moment for the, for that that that's how same page, same page. Just a brutal spot to call that foul. Tie game, elite eight, trip to the final four on the line. Come on, man. Come on, man. Couple more things on this. Uh, number one, if the whistle doesn't get blown, let's say there was no foul call there. Darian Trammell goes up, shot goes, he misses a shot, buzzer sounds, going to overtime. No foul call. San Diego State, the fans, the people back in the studio, Jay Wright, Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, Kellogg, Ernie Johnson, everybody, the media, nobody would have said a thing. You think after the game they would have been talking about the no call at the end of regulation? Come on. Nobody would have said a thing. And y'all know I ain't lying. Nobody would have complained. That alone should be pretty telling. That alone should be pretty telling. And the and the final thing on this, I'm I, for those that are that are thinking, oh, Nick, you're just a Creighton homer. That's why you disagree with this. I swear to you on Dr. James Naismith, if the roles were reversed, let's say Darian Trammell, he got called for that exact same foul on Ryan Nemhard, and Ryan Nemhard made a free throw for Creighton to win, I would have absolutely said, boy, Creighton got lucky and fortunate to get that call. I swear on Dr. Naismith, I would have felt that way and said as much. Like th- that that call not only not only did it hurt and wound like the Creighton part of my soul, but it, it really, really hurt and wounded my basketball soul. I don't know who, like even if you're San Diego State, you'll take it, obviously, and you're excited to go to the final four. It's great, right? Not trying to take anything away from you. But like even they're like, ah, that's kind of, yeah, really? That's how it got settled? That's how the game was won? Yeah. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza. You know, there are a lot of ways to, to greet someone. Hey, hi, hello, what's up? Another way is, what's popping? Well, here's the thing. That greeting has taken on a new meaning now because the answer to what's popping is now, Runza's new popcorn chicken. That's what's popping. Runza's new popcorn chicken is amazing. Little bite-sized, delicious, all-white meat chicken that make any day better immediately. I love them. My wife loves them. My kids cannot get enough. Two-year-old Mac, six-year-old Mava are constantly wanting to get it popping. Great for a snack, great for a meal. Pair them with the best crinkle fries on planet Earth, and you are set. All I got to say is you need to get out to a Runza location nearest you and get it popping. What's so hard to understand about that? Get it popping with Runza's all-new popcorn chicken. Runza makes it all better. 
So that's my take. Again, the game had been a step. The, the refs, if you're one of those people like, I just want consistency from the refs, the refs weren't consistent. They'd established the way they'd been calling that game. They had let it become a physical slugfest fist fight. And then they call a touch foul in the final two seconds of the game. I am a person that believes in situational officiating. In this situation, tie game, it's not a crazy egregious foul. I'd say it's debatable how much it impacted the shot. Yeah, I don't know. To me, there's an understanding. Going to let a little bit more go. It's got to be it in that spot. It's got to be egregious for for a foul to be called. If the foul wouldn't have been called, nobody would have said a thing. That is alone is like, well, yeah, okay. That's probably, that's that's not good. Yeah, it's not. It's not. So there you go. That's my, that's my take on the foul. I didn't like the call. Okay, so with this game, like I said at the top, and it's why I wanted to preface everything with what I said at the beginning, the foul isn't what lost Creighton the game. What lost the game for Creighton was the two prevailing things that occurred both due to San Diego State's physicality. Creighton got punked physically in the second half. San Diego State imposed their will. I thought San Diego State wore down Creighton with their big bodies and bruising style of play. Creighton got crushed on the offensive glass. And San Diego State's pressure and physicality on the ball defensively totally discombobulated Creighton's offense. Creighton only had 10 turnovers for the game, which is like the what I that that when I saw that, it was that few. I was like, man, that's surprising. And the reason it the reason it felt like way more was because it honestly felt like for the entire second half, Creighton was on the brink of a turnover on every single possession. Creighton was so pressed out, so heated up. They had a hard time entering offense. The timing of their offense got screwed up. They got deep into the shot clock numerous times, and it was all because of San Diego State's ball pressure and physicality. I did think, sometimes I think some of this stuff, I don't know what I think of it, but like I being courtside, I thought I felt it. I did think Creighton got worn down. I thought guys looked like they were tired, especially Nemhard and Kalkbrenner. All five, look, if you think, look at this. All five Creighton starters played 35 plus minutes. Shireman played 38, Kalkbrenner played 37, Kaluma 37, Trey Alexander 37, Ryan Nemhard 35. You contrast that with San Diego State starting five, only one guy played over 30 minutes, and that was Darian Tremel played 31. I thought Creighton got worn down. And I thought San Diego State's physicality wore into Creighton. Since we got a lot of Jaskers that that exist and listen to this pod, I like that game was akin to like the Miami Nebraska '94 Orange Bowl, where like Nebraska's physicality in the trenches in the offensive line, like and and D line, like wore Miami out. Where all of a sudden that Schlesinger two yard gain in the first and second quarter is now popping for touchdowns in the fourth quarter. To me, that's what this game kind of was reminiscent of. San Diego State's 
in particular their front line, those big bodies banging and banging and leaning and pushing and shoving. Like all of a sudden, the offensive rebounds were were coming San Diego State's way. And I thought even even though he was the littlest guy on the floor, Darian Trammell's ball pressure into Nemhard over the course of 40 minutes wore into Nemhard. And by the end of the game, Nemhard was was a little worn down. But you know what's amazing? What's amazing is, you know, so do, when you're doing when you're doing the radio or TV, you get handed a box score at every timeout. So every single every single timeout, you get they they hand you a box score. I am ha- I am looking at the box score at the under four media timeout. There's three minutes and forty five seconds left in the first half of the Creighton-San Diego State game. You know what's amazing? At this point, San Diego State has zero offensive rebounds. So for the first 16 minutes and 15 seconds of that game, San Diego State had zero offensive rebounds. Creighton was doing a good job keeping San Diego State off the glass and clearing the defensive boards. But I don't know if it was the what I'm talking about, the, the, the getting worn down, there was a cumulative effect, or if San Diego State just, just started crashing harder or whatever. I think it's a mixture of all those things. The levy broke, and all of a sudden the game flipped after this point on the offensive glass. Because for the next... 10 or 11 minutes of of game time, San Diego State had 10 offensive rebounds. Zero for the first 16 minutes and change. And then for the next 10 or 11 minutes, San Diego State had 10 offensive rebounds. They finished the game, looking at the final box score, they finished the game with 13 offensive rebounds. So it's just interesting... For a while, Creighton was hanging in there on the glass. But when the levy broke, boy, did it, it broke. And San Diego State started going after everything. And Creighton's offense, like I said, was just a mess in the second half. I thought the pressure and physicality wore into Creighton and bothered them. Creighton in the second half only made eight field goals. And... I should have held on to it. With about three or four minutes left in the second half, Creighton had only made five field goals for the entire – so for the first probably like 15 minutes, 15, 16 minutes of the second half, Creighton only made five shots. Creighton was bad in the second half offensively. They they were bad. They were out of sorts. They were pressed out. They were getting physically moved around. Second half, they scored 23 points. Were 8 of 29 from the floor. I also said and thought going into the game that the three-point line was going to be important. Creighton went 0 for 10 from three in the second half and 2 for 17 from three for the game. 
San Diego State has third best three-point defense in the country, but still, Creighton needed to make some threes, and they just were ice cold. 0 for 10 from three in the second half. And when you're off, I guess you're off. Because Creighton also missed a handful of layups in the final two minutes of the game as well. Two, three minutes of the game, and including the final minute. Like, Baylor Shireman missed one on a setback door. Ryan Nemhard missed one with about uh, like 35 seconds left, or about a minute left, excuse me. Had the little up pick set for him at the elbow. Shireman hit him roll, going to the basket. Nathan Menza came to contest it, but that's still, a, you know, I mean, it's a layup. And then I have no idea how Trey Alexander's little eight-foot jumper, who that's, his, that's Trey Alexander. He's an amazing little mid-range jump shooter. I have no idea how Trey Alexander's eight-foot jumper didn't go in with around 35 seconds left. That ball, that thing hit the rim softly three times, rolled in and around and out. So Creighton had their chances with shots right around the hoop late and some open threes, and they just missed them. They just missed them. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. So, there you go. Uh, five more quick thoughts, and I'll wrap this up. Five more quick thoughts on the game, and I'll wrap this up. Number one, one, a big adjustment that San Diego State made in the second half that I thought really made a big impact was San Diego State started posting up Kaluma with their foreman, and it was mainly a rope. But they also did it with Jaden Ledee. They did a little bit with Johnson. But it was mainly a rope. They all, all those guys, they started ducking in on Kaluma and posting him up. And they scored consistently over the top of him. Nobody had really done that all year on Creighton. You got to hand it to Brian Dutcher in San Diego State. That was a good adjustment. And in a game where points were hard to come by, any basket was huge. And San Diego State had to have scored six or eight points or so in the second half posting up Kaluma, where they would set a ball screen, Menza would roll to the basket, that would kind of hold Kalkbrenner, and then on the block, a rope would, would, would they call it a duck in, kind of step in front of Kaluma, right in front of the rim and post him up, and Butler or Trammell would, would feed it into a rope and they'd hit that little jump hook. 
So I thought that was a in terms of like well what what adjustment that was a huge adjustment from San Diego State and it really hurt Creighton. Second thought, really really interesting sequence late for Creighton defensively from a strategy standpoint. So when Baylor Shireman steals the inbounds pass with the score tie or with the, down 56-54 and he steals the inbounds pass and, and lays it in to tie it at 56, there, there was about 32.4 seconds on the game clock. So there was going to be a little, a, a two-second difference between the shot and game clock for San Diego State. And Creighton only had five team fouls at that point. They had one foul to give. And Greg McDermott decided to use his one foul to give. Now, I agreed with the strategy, and I agreed with it at the time, and I still think I do the more as, you know, as time passes and the more I think about it. The problem was that Trey Alexander fouled too early. Again, there was like a two-and-a-half-second difference between shot and game clock. Ideally, you would have fouled with about three or four seconds left and now, now San Diego State's only got a you know three or four seconds left to get the ball back in bounds and do something. But the problem was Lamont Butler started to kind of drive it to the right. Now I think he might, if you rewatch it, I think he's trying to drive it to the right to set up to come off a ball screen back to his left, and that would have been a perfect opportunity with the ball screen to to hard hedge and foul. And it would have it would have timed up perfectly. There'd have been about four seconds or so left of the game clock. But if you're Trey Alexander, it's hard to know that. And so Lamar Butler started to kind of drive it to his right, and Trey Alexander probably felt like he didn't want to let Butler get too far into his move or too far into the paint for fear of fouling on a jump shot. So he took the foul with six seconds left because he felt like that was the safest time to probably do it. And I can understand where Trey Alexander's coming from there. But man, ugh. hindsight being 2020, that was probably too no, I shouldn't say probably it was too early to foul. Again, I agree with the strategy at the time because you were going to force San Diego State to inbound the ball again, which they had had issues with. They had just turned the ball over. Adam Seiko had just turned it over on the steal from Shireman. He laid it in. And on the previous possession, the, the, they had just had to call timeout before that because they couldn't get the ball in. So San Diego State was having a hard time getting the ball in. So I, I, I like that you were going to force San Diego State to inbound the ball again, and then you were going to force them to have to reset everything and, and, and get into an action and attack in a shorter period of time. I mean, right now, just envision how that last whole sequence played out, but instead of 6.7 or 6.8 seconds on the clock, whatever it was, imagine there's only four seconds on the clock. The, the, San Diego State runs out of time. Right, they they had, they had a hard time getting it in. They had to throw it into a rope, and a rope didn't. You know, they didn't want to throw it to a rope. A rope had pivoted a couple of times and got it to Tremel. At that point, like let's say there's three or four seconds left, a rope might have had to turn and heave one up, or for sure when he handed it to Tremel, he would have had to heave one up. So it's just, uh, it's just right strategy. 
it just would have been better executed if Trey Alexander would have fouled with a little less time on the clock. Third thought, third final thought here. I will say this, lost on that last play of, of the bad foul call on, on Ryan Emhard. Ryan Emhard didn't play very good defense at all. We, we got to acknowledge that. You rewatch it, there was no ball screen set. There was, there was no rub action that he had to fight through. There was no ball screen set. Ryan Emhard just let Darian Trammell dribble right around him in and get all the way in the lane. He got so far past him that he was uh, – Nemard was almost behind him and was obviously for sure on the side of him. So I think we got to acknowledge that too. Like lost in the in the, in the the controversial foul call is the fact that Nemhard didn't play very good defense in that spot. Keep him in front. Keep everything in front and contest. Fourth thought. Fourth final thought. Because I, I, I also want to say this. Anybody that knows me and has listened to me for a long time, I mean, I've been doing, I've been in the media since, you know, for 2009, doing radio for a decade and now doing podcasting and then doing TV and all that stuff. You know, I, I mean, I call 30 basketball games a year, 30 plus, 30 to 35 basketball games a year on TV. And if you listen to me, I don't talk about officiating. I really don't. I'm typically, 99% of the time, I'm a huge referee defender. I'm a huge huge officiating defender. I really am. I think officials, I think they have a ridiculously tough, thankless job. Every time you go out, no matter what, one team is going to hate you, one fan base is going to hate you, one coaching staff is going to hate you and think you did a terrible job. Nobody goes out of their way to say, hey, ref, hey, hey, great job tonight. You really called a good game tonight. Good job. Right? Nobody says that. But people damn sure go out of their way to say, hey, ref, you suck. You ruined the game. Doing what I do with, with college basketball on Fox, I talk to a lot of officials before games. That's kind of one of the things that happens. Officials, as they come out before the game, they usually come to the TV table and shake hands with the TV announcers and we and, you know we chop it up for a second. So I've I've talked to a ton of officials over the course of my 9 years as a college basketball analyst and then during my time as a player, you know, I was a captain at Creighton, so I talked to a lot of officials. I was, as a captain, you're kind of the guy that the go between that like you talk to the officials. So over the course of the last 15 years, I have gotten to know and talk to a lot of officials. I think they're all good people, man. I like them a lot. I really do. I like officials. They're good people. And you've heard me say this on the radio and on my podcast. I think talking about officiating and criticizing officiating and crushing the refs is low-hanging fruit, uninteresting content. I've always felt like that. I've always I've always felt like, you know, when I was doing a sports talk show, like if I turn on the mic on a Monday and my my big take is to talk about the refs, I need to I need to go back in the lab and re-examine my content. I just have never talking about the refs, yeah. I typically d- dislike any conversations recapping a game or discussing sports that are centered around criticizing officials. 
So I do, I do empathize with refs and officials the vast majority of the time. And I defend them the vast majority of the time. But at the same time, refs, officials are also just like anyone else. Coaches, players, broadcasters, whoever involved with a game. They all get criticized. Players mess up, they hear about it. Coaches mess up, they hear about it. Coaches and players, they can all have bad moments. TV broadcasters, they can have bad moments. Then they hear about it. Well, guess what? Refs can have bad moments too. Refs can make mistakes too. Refs can screw things up too. They can blow a call or blow a game too. And while I typically don't want to always rip and crush officials, they also shouldn't be immune to or above getting called out for making a massive mistake. You want to ref an Elite Eight game? That's a big stage. A part of that privilege of wearing the stripes and holding the the whistle for that kind of a game That's a privilege, and a a part of that privilege bears the responsibility that if you fuck up, you better own it, and you're going to hear about it, and that's okay. We can't live in a world where everybody, you know, coaches can't get criticized, players can't get criticized, broadcasters can't get criticized, refs can't get, no, like it can't be a thing where like you can criticize coaches, players, the, the broadcasters, but refs, no way, come on. So again, I typically, I, I like refs, I really do. And if you've listened to me over the course of the last decade plus, you know this is true. I, gotta, I typically don't like talking about officiating. I don't. I think there are a thousand more things that are more interesting. And I typically don't want to rip and crush officials, but that shouldn't make them, and that doesn't mean that they are immune to or above getting called out if they blow it. And I thought this ref blew it. Why would you want to make that call, man? Why do you want to make that call? It's tied. It's a tie game. Ugh. Final thought. Lastly, I have a lot of respect for San Diego State. It's a hell of a basketball program. San Diego State has the third best record in all of college basketball over the last three seasons. Since 2010, San Diego State has the fifth best record in all of college basketball. In 2020, before COVID canceled the NCAA tournament, that year, San Diego State started 26-0. They were 30-2 when the NCAA tournament got canceled. So this is a legit, great, not good, great basketball program, especially over the course of the last decade. I got a lot of respect for the Aztecs. They do a great job. They got an identity, and they are tough. And again, you got to tip your cap. 
San Diego State, they established the complexion of the game and got the game how they wanted it. The game got played on their terms. They imposed their will onto Creighton and won the game. So like Greg McDermott said after the game, San Diego State won the game because they made more plays than Creighton did. Period. Sure, the call was a huge moment. But I'll end this the same way I started it. Creighton didn't lose the game because of that call. They lost the game because San Diego State punked Creighton physically. They imposed their will onto Creighton and the offensive glass and their physicality and pressure on the ball got Creighton all off schedule, all out of sorts, all pressed out offensively to the tune of only going 8 for 29 from the field in the second half. So there you go. I still I'm, I want to take some more time before kind of recapping the season. You know, less than 24 hours removed from that game, I, I want a few days to kind of let it let it sit, get get my thoughts together. So I'll I'll, I'll record a season recap, you know, in it coming soon. But I wanted to I wanted to get that wanted to get an elite eight San Diego State Creighton game recap pod out there. But man, amazing season. Amazing season, incredible NCAA tournament run comes to an end. Unfortunate way to end, obviously, but this was a historic e- season. No, Creighton went further than they've ever gone in the NCAA tournament. Elite eight, uncharted territory for the Creighton basketball program. Amazing. So, still a lot to be excited about, a lot to be proud of. If you're if you're Creighton, remarkable run in the NCAA tournament. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading and supporting the podcast. Shout out to Pella. Shout out to Runza. Incredible partners. And we'll see you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. A Heard at Sports Network production.